This is our new Asia series from Control Risk, our podcast that bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks that we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Dane Chamorro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices across the region in Singapore, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist risk consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges, including recovery from the latest pandemic crisis. Our offering includes political and regulatory analyses, vendor screening, strategic intelligence, forensics and data analytics, due diligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today we're talking about Asia's economic slowdown and its recovery. The region was the first to experience the COVID virus, but the economic effects have varied widely. Some regions, especially Northeast Asia, Korea, and Taiwan, have emerged stronger than others, such as India. Structurally open economies like Singapore, Hong Kong, and Thailand are facing historic downturns. Some sectors, online commerce and tech, for example, have sailed through while tourism was badly hit. Asia is responsible for 70% of global GDP growth, so it's very much a story of as Asia goes, so goes the world. Today I'm speaking with Priyanka Kishore, Global Macro Services Lead at Oxford Economics. She was previously with Standard Chartered Bank and was the head of Emerging Markets Analysis at ICICI Bank, India's largest private financial institution. If India is able to contain the virus better, and that's a big if at this point of time, because we've made it to the top 10 list of confirmed cases, even if they are coming from three states. But if if they are able to you know, contain the virus better because they have ramped up their testing, then there is a chance that India's recovery is not as prolonged as Indonesia's. Because in Indonesia, you did not have a lockdown. You probably have not contained the virus. You do not know the true status of the virus. So households and businesses are going to remain in a state of uncertainty. That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk Asia Pacific team. So Priyanka, great to have you with us. Um, I think the the topic for on the top of everybody's mind, uh, certainly in the business world, are growth prospects for the second half because Virtually everyone has experienced at least a few months of really challenging times economically, commercially. So what are you saying? What is Oxford Economics saying about the second half uh, for Asia? How does that look? And obviously, we know there's not one Asia. So if you want to break it down by region, that maybe is a great way to start. As you know, everybody is taking uh pain to some degree or the other or to large or massive degree, if we want to put it in that scale, uh, in the first half of the year. But uh, the good news is that lockdowns are now easing globally, also within Asia. But uh, given that a lot of Asian economies are dependent on external demand, it, it matters that the Europe and US is emerging out of uh, uh, a lockdown. And also, you, you see a lot of uh, domestic support policy support coming through. And uh, last but not the least, we are in various stages of controlling the virus. So I think these three factors sort of taken together are going to determine um, how the second half of the year is going to look for Asia. Asia as a whole, yes, it it will look better for Asia as a whole as it will for the rest of the world compared to uh, H1 because external demand picks up. So exports benefit on the back of that. And 
you see the more open economies, uh, most of North Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, within Asia, within Southeast Asia, Singapore uh, benefiting uh, quite a bit on the back of that. We overlay that with policy response. Again, these are some of the countries that have actually seen a much bigger policy and stronger fiscal response uh, from their governments, uh, both Taiwan and Korea, as well as Singapore, which came out with its uh, fourth uh, fiscal package just uh, yesterday. So that yeah. that also looks pretty positive for this set of uh, economists. But then we come to the real tricky part, which is uh, what is happening to your domestic economy, both in terms of your domestic lockdown. So Singapore is still in some form of lockdown. And then we are looking at a very gradual easing, honestly, even after uh, next month. And uh, the virus is not completely suppressed in uh, all parts of um, uh, this world. So then uh, a very unlikely candidate like Malaysia shows up in good light because they've done a good job of containing the virus and their lockdown is easing. So domestically, they're they're looking better than some of the uh, some of the peers. And, and hence, their H2 prospects are suddenly also looking quite uh, positive at, at this point of time. So, so I think, you know, these these are the countries which are going to lead the recovery in the second half of the year. China is a separate case altogether. It ha- it was hit by, by the virus the first. It has had a lot of time to recoup. So it actually gets three quarters of recovery instead of two quarters, uh, uh, unlike rest of uh, Asia. So, so naturally, it, you know, it, it gets a lot of time to recover despite seeing a lesser uh, policy stimulus. So let's just treat that in an outlier because it doesn't fit into this framework. The other thing that's happened uh, in, in kind of simultaneously and connected to this virus is the collapse in oil prices. And for most countries in Asia, that's a huge benefit because they're intensive energy importers, whether it's Japan, Korea, China, India. Uh, so that's kind of, a, you know, works to the upside for, for a lot of the economies, but they are also having to spend more in terms of policy support that you that you mentioned domestically, um, which which often hits their 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 you know potential uh, their ability to run deficits and 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 spend money in other areas whether it's education or infrastructure that type of thing. So do we see despite the kind of the benefit from the oil price decline, do we see that uh, foresee that the the policy support that's been put in place is going to hamper things like infrastructure spending, particularly in places like Southeast Asia and India, where we know there's a huge infrastructure deficit. Do we see that, you know, that shift in resources going to support jobs and, and kind of the more general economy, is that going to hamper the the infrastructure programs, just as an example in some of these countries? That, that's pretty likely to be the case in the in the short term. I mean, India entered the crisis with a very weak fiscal position itself, and and that partly has been the reason why it has been so hesitant to pump in a lot of um, money directly into the vulnerable sections of the society, despite having one of the most stringent lockdowns globally, at least in the initial uh, days when it was uh, announced. Uh, and and then clearly, whatever money they can now spare would and should probably will end up going towards, you know, uh, 
addressing the short-term hit to the economy that's increasingly looking very acute as forecasts keep getting revised down and uh, down. So infrastructure plans basically get uh, kicked down down the road. Philippines is uh, still harping on its build, build, build program. But if you actually look at the kind of uh, spending that's that's going through, uh, capital spending has taken a back seat. And, and I think that, you know, it will take at least about middle of 2021 or even, you know, early 22 when we see, you know, those kind of uh, spending uh, come back up uh, full steam and, and all the, you know, the infrastructure leading economies of Asia, Indonesia, India, Philippines. So that's a that's a good point. And one of the uh, uh, you know, drivers of obviously infrastructure spend was around supply chains and sometimes kind of on a more domestic basis, maybe for a large country like India, but also the ability to sustain, not to mention attract, uh, supply chain investment from uh, perhaps more countries that have become more expensive. So countries like China, as an example, and there's been a lot of talk now since the virus about countries, including India, going out of their way to aggressively uh, uh, hunt for investors, corporate investors, to shift their supply chains in a, in a number of different sectors from China to India, as an example. But as we know, India and a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia, even the so-called success stories like Vietnam, are really challenged from an infrastructure perspective, certainly in comparison to China. So is that, is that kind of fantasy? I mean, is that, is that we've seen that the Chinese supply chains actually perform pretty well. Uh, is it fantasy to think that there's going to be a, a shift of supply chains from, from China to, to the Indonesias and the Indias of the world? It's probably got a bit delayed, but uh, courtesy of the renewed tensions between uh, U.S. and China that, that simply seem to be heading towards a Cold War, if you ask me, and you're much better, better informed and placed to talk about that than I am. It, it does seem, you know, as the virus uh, you know, tensions end and the world starts to refocus on other things. US-China tensions are going to come back to the fore in a much bigger way than they were probably, you know, as we headed into the virus, because we were talking about uh, a trade uh, truce kind of between the two countries. We had a phase one deal, uh, but now all of that is up in the air. So that's definitely going to bring back the whole supply chain uh, talk and, and countries wanting to attract it. Now, you, you threw up uh, some names there. India, of course, you know, has been very vocal about its wish to attract supply chains, but nothing really has changed since before our analysis, uh, before the virus analysis on this uh, topic, because even then it was Vietnam, which actually seemed far, far better placed than anybody else to attract the supply chain moving out of China, at least in the low value added space. And, and given that they have actually weathered this virus much better, it's probably one of the rare uh, countries in this part of the world or even globally, which is actually going to grow this year. So they ha actually have more bandwidth to continue focusing on their infrastructure spending and start spending on it, uh, start focusing on it earlier uh, than India, because India has not even pushed ahead with any of the meaningful reforms other than, you know, uh, announcing a corporate 
tax rate cut, which right now is not going to bear any result in the near future, and and other things at the, the margin. So I think the pecking order remains unchanged in ten, terms of who is better placed. It's uh, Vietnam by far followed uh, by Malaysia, Thailand, and, and then India and Indonesia are much, much lower given their you know poor progress in terms of reforms. Uh, but the whole process probably now you know gets uh, delayed a bit on the back of this. That makes me think of one of the sectors that's very important to all of the countries that we've just talked about in different ways, um, and then that's tech. So uh, if we think about some of the economies in Asia, the more open economies, let's put it that way, you have the Malaysias of the world and the Taiwans and the Koreas, all of all of whom are, are very big in the tech space. Um, and some have done better managing the crisis than others. Uh, how do we see how do we see that that sector particularly playing out across the region um, in in your view? That's actually very uh, interesting that sector because it's it's held up pretty well in early twenty two. You know, despite of the uh, pandemic, and we've clearly uh, seen that show up in in Taiwan's exports, for example, another country which has been weathering this uh, crisis uh, uh, pretty well. But but of course, you know what what we do see is that at a macro level, chip sales, which are the biggest drivers of the semiconductor uh, sector, remain very strongly correlated with the global manufacturing PMI cycle. And the kind of collapse that we are forecasting, you know, in, in that cycle, very sharp in, in Q2 and, and then a more muted uh, recovery in the second half of the year doesn't really uh, bode well, at least in the short term for the semiconductor sector. We think that, you know, uh, sales might probably fall off the cliff in, in the coming months. You do have some demand coming in from 5G deployment, but that completely does not offset the more traditional chip demand, you know, as, you know, consumer electronics, smartphones, et cetera, consumption recovery is looking increasingly delayed and patchy globally. So that's that's a pretty big negative for the sector. So the short term uh, looks like a sharp drop. And, and then we have to see, you know, how the consumption recovery plays out, whether it's a V, v or a U. Uh, but but beyond that, of course, you know the the structural underpinnings underpinnings are intact. We're still looking at uh, widespread 5G deployment across the world, etc., which which brings in a new driver of demand uh, for for the sector. So the so the longer term, I think, still looks uh, positive. There are big challenges in the short term. So you've mentioned India previously, and. I want to drill down a little bit more on that, but I want to I want to challenge you here and also add Indonesia because uh, we often see very similar challenges for our clients across the two markets in terms of the levels of bureaucracy, the levels of corruption, the decentralized nature of the state, uh, the challenges acquiring land, uh, labor issues uh, in terms of, of dismissal of labor. Uh, and how co- complicated that is, um, as well as legal challenge, legal systems, contract, contract sanctity, and things like that. So maybe I could just ask you, you know, to to kind of give us your view there. That obviously it's the it's the biggest economy in South Asia and the biggest economy in Southeast Asia. So how do you see those two playing out? Are there going to be more similarities than differences, or will one kind of um, maybe top the other in terms of coming out of this current crisis? 
I think the shape of recovery is very different uh, in the sense Indonesia never really imposed a full-fledged containment, right, or a lockdown, as as we say. Uh, uh, Jokowi uh, pretty much from the start took the view of hiding, you know, sort of the extent of uh, uh, how much the economy was impacted by the virus so that uh, household and business confidences do not plummet. Nonetheless, they have taken a hit because, you know, uh, you have newspaper stories, you know, there's not enough testing and, and there is a general uh, disbelief of the government's uh, uh, figures that are being officially uh, reported. So you Indonesia is probably going to take a smaller hit simply because it did not go into a lockdown in the short term. So as a, as a share, you probably had larger share of activity working in, uh, as compared to India, which went into a almost a 70 to 80 percent shutdown in early March nationwide. Everything other than non-essential activities and a shutdown. But as you emerge from that, if India is able to contain the virus better, and that's a big if at this point of time, because we've made it to the top 10 list of confirmed cases, even if they are coming from three states. But if if they are able to you know, contain the virus better because they have ramped up their testing, then there is a chance that India's recovery is not as prolonged as Indonesia's. Because in Indonesia, you did not have a lockdown. You probably have not contained the virus. You do not know the true status of the virus. So households and businesses are going to remain in a state of uncertainty for much longer, which is going to impact their spending on consumer spending, investment spending. It's going to get impacted in domestic demand for a longer period. Whereas in India, you, you probably see it, it, it's still going to be challenged by its traditional problems, which were existing before the virus. But uh, the virus related concerns probably dissipate faster, leading to a kind of a knee jerk uh, initial rebound, which we do not see in Indonesia. So to recap some of Priyanka's key points here, recovery for Asia's economies in the second half will vary depending on levels of fiscal support that national governments have extended, dependence on external demand, and the degree of lockdown. Taiwan, Korea, and Vietnam seem likely to do better in the short run, and China, of course, will have three quarters of recovery since they entered the virus first. Infrastructure spend will be slowed as governments divert financial resources to economic support. This is especially true for countries such as India, where growth and economic reform strategy were already faltering. And this will also delay any significant supply chain relocation to India, despite the Indian government's attempt to attract these investments from other countries such as China. Finally, Asia's tech sector has remained robust throughout the crisis, but consumer sentiment will determine growth of the sector in the short term. The adoption of 5G across the region and globally will drive longer term positive trends. Thanks all for listening. This was another in our Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisk.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for Control Risk.